Welcome to the panel discussion, Government Data, Protecting the Backbone of Innovation, sponsored by Commvault and Pure Storage. Here's today's moderator, Tom Temin. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guests today are Brandon Pashofsky, Chief Data Officer at USAID, Daniel Commons is Federal Student Aid Chief Information Security Officer and Director of the Information Technology Risk Management at the Department of Education. Tim Stanley is Vice President for Federal Sales at Commvault, and Nick Saki is Principal Engineer for the Americas Public Sector at Pure Storage. And why don't we get right to it? Everybody has lots of data nowadays, and really the nature of applications and the deployment of digital services have put data in the forefront of something to be managed almost as a commodity in and of itself. And you still have to back up the applications and everything else. So give us a sense, we'll start with our two federal guests, a sense of the scope of the data that you are dealing with, and then what some of your overall strategies are for ensuring backup, and of course, backup's no good unless you can get it back and recovery. So Brandon, why don't we start with you? Sure, yeah, appreciate it, Tom. Uh, USAID's data is incredibly diverse. We have uh, data on everything from food security in Bangladesh to uh, education levels in India, microfinance in Jordan, even uh, genomic data on drought-resistant crop strains and things like that. Uh, So a lot of data at the very granular level that comes in from the field around the world, and at the same time, uh, that data is generated by and large by contractors and grantees, uh, and, and our first step has really been to ensure that that data comes into the environment. Uh, So in 2014, we changed all of our grants, cooperative agreements, and contracts to say, you know what, if you're receiving USAID funding, you need to submit that data back to USAID, and that now comes into uh, a digital repository that we call the Development Data Library. Uh, We just launched a new version of that uh, on November 13th at data.usaid.gov. That's hosted entirely in the cloud. Uh, But that includes geospatial data, very granular uh, study level data, but then we have sort of the the big data, so to speak, the transactional level data from our financial and procurement applications, uh, all of which at this point is hosted entirely in the cloud. And uh, we did a, a significant uh, migration in 2018 from uh, you know, physical server storage uh, and, and moved all of that entirely into the cloud at this point. So we're glad to be uh, mostly cloud-based. And so uh, the cloud backs itself up or what happens? I mean, how, does that, how do you know that you've got recovery capabilities? Those are all designed into the service level agreements that we have with the vendors uh, to ensure that that's backed up on a regular basis. And you know, in terms of the actual retention schedules, a lot of that, as you well know, is, is governed by by, uh, you know, NARA, uh, National Archives Records Administration, so we make sure that our agreements are in compliance with that. Okay, good. And uh, Dan, welcome, and uh, tell us about Education Department, also kind of a widely diverse agency. It is extremely diverse. Um, my concentration has been the federal student aid side of the house, where our primary mission has been to provide those funds out to the students, to provide the educational opportunities for them across the board. So if you look at that that volume of that data and the type of data, you're seeing mainly financial data as well as all the personal information. Uh, An example is in 2018, we were able to award $120 million to students to go to school. That represented almost 13 million students. If you take a look at that data sets, that's 13 million information of PII, your personal information. Multiply that by the student, Their parents' information is on those forms as well. Maybe they have a spouse, and pretty quickly you can see the volume uh, extrapolates very high. If you look across the the full portfolio, we're talking about $1.5 trillion portfolio here. 43 million active users in that portfolio. That is shared not only within the department for our activities to actually institute the award process, 
But schools, we have 6,000 schools we partner with that access that data for the students that are attending there so they can actually you know, send that money out to the kids to use. Um, add that to the servicers, the folks that take care of the loans after the student's completed and during the payoff period. If you look across that entire portfolio, we have to keep most of that data, in some cases going back to NARA rules, 30 years. So the data problem is immense. Uh, similar to, to uh, my partner over there, the federal requirements dictate how we do the backups currently and how long we retain them and how we dispose of that information. As FSA has envisioned or re-envisioned our operations and developed a concept called Next Generation FSA, at the keystone of which is the Next Generation Financial Services, that umbrella process that we've defined is going to change our business processes to become more efficient. It's going to change our technology stack as well to modernize everything across the board. We've already started some of those activities. Um, My Student Aid was the first mobile endeavor we have done. We released that originally last year in a pilot phase. This summer we released it so the students could actually use that to do their FAFSA applications for the first time in that mobile environment. Because as we're aware, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about mobile as we go through here, you know, today folks live and die by the mobile devices. You know, so many activities happen on those mobile devices. Hopefully live. Hopefully live, exactly. So we've had to look very hard at not only how we develop those particular applications, but the end-to-end process for it, which leads to where do we end up with that data? Where do we store that data? And what do we do and protect that data? Um, Being a cybersecurity person, you know, most of my concern is, is around that data. We have 70 information systems that access that data, produce that data, or house that data in some form. So it's a very large problem for us that that we grapple with every day. Um, We are planning under the next generation financial services a full redesign of our data platforms, going to more of a unified approach, looking at options on how we can optimize the data, reduce that storage requirements overall, and then be able to access and provide the content that that our students are asking for, our administrators at the schools are asking for, our parents are asking for, uh, as well as the, the massive amount of reporting we need to do to the outside agencies such as Congress. All right, so a time of great ferment sounds like going on there. It, it is. It is um, the modernization effort alone under the new process of the Next Generation Financial Services is not only, like I said, changing the business process, but dramatically changing that technology stacks. Okay, and we'll get back to that in certain detail as we move forward here. Uh, Tim Stanley of Commvault, what do you see across the government in terms of how they're dealing with data storage? Yeah, absolutely. And Tom, thanks for having us today. So I think, you know, what we what we hear from our customers quite often is, is they're looking for strategy, looking for a data management platform strategy and how they can take the data, the massive amounts of data that they're, they're, they're pulling from, uh, from their field or from the organization and where is the appropriate place to store that data? Where, is, do, where do we keep the warm data? Where do we keep that cold, that cold data? And then once we have that data under protection, how do I do more with that data? How do I get more? How do I drive more innovation out of that data that I currently have under protection today? So, so we have we we see our customers asking more and more about what can I do with the data that I have under protection, and how do I you know much much like Daniel just said, is how do I you know how do we reduce that storage footprint? How do we, you know, minimize the duplicity of the data? Uh, how do I get at the data that is the source of truth? Uh, so we're helping customers put together that data platform, a data management strategy, to access uh, the data that they have today. 
and make more use of it. Yeah, a lot of issues there, especially that duplicity, because that can really balloon your storage without giving you more value. Absolutely. All right, and uh, Nick, you're a solid state storage. Should people worry about what type of disk their data is on? Well, I think that as we've seen the tremendous explosion in data growth over the past 10 years in particular, we've recognized that while networks have gotten faster, servers have gotten faster, storage has really been lagging in terms of modernization. What, what I'm hearing across all fronts is a desire to have a consolidated capability for servicing data, and that's really what a storage array does, uh, as well as reducing size, weight, power cooling, data center floor space, and overall performance. Because at the end of the day, the, the rate at which we can move data in and out of the compute infrastructure directly drives how quickly we can know the things we want to know and make the decisions we need to make uh, to deliver better student services, to deliver better foreign aid, to make uh, smarter inferential decisions about the policies we need to implement, um, decisions that we need to make in business. So really, since storage is uh, where the rubber meets the road, as it were, where the data meets the enterprise, uh, my company has really stepped back and said, this really isn't about managing infrastructure, it is about managing data. And what we need to facilitate is the ability for government, for industry, uh, to create data-centric architectures, to build data platforms and to build data hubs so that we can get the most benefit out of the extensive data holdings, particularly that the U.S. government has. And one of the things that's often lost on people is that the U.S. government has been collecting digital data for as long as there have been computers. So they have a tremendous head start on most other enterprises and consequently significantly larger data holdings. And that's really why Pure Storage was founded, to create a capability that modernizes and transforms the data service component of the enterprise. You know, I'm thinking of something you said to the warm and cold idea, mm -hmm. which in some sense is an old concept. There was, you know, level one, two, three storage. Right. And at one time it was okay if it took maybe hours to recover from some kind of a mechanical or optical storage robotic system. You know, you didn't really need the data that quickly. But I'm thinking in the era of person-centered case management, such as you might see at, at education, and digital services, where there are multiple data sources being accessed to deliver a data service, what are the implications there for how much of that storage is hot versus just warm, and can any of it ever be cold at some point? How do you work on that issue, Brandon? Yeah. You know, the uh, we certainly do make a distinction between certain flavors of data, so to speak. You know, your your financial transactional data, particularly at the end of the fiscal year, becomes uh, extremely important to keep hot. Um, and, uh, and we make sure we do that. Um, you know, the uh, procurement sensitive data, uh, same category. Uh, you know, some of our, our HR data, obviously. The operations data is, is very much the critical part. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's extremely uh, important to have, to have hot. Um, given that we're mostly in the cloud, uh, we can, you know, really changing uh, from a, you know, hot to a cold to a warm uh, is really a phone call away, which is, you know, very nice to have that flexibility in the cloud. Um, for some of our more granular data that's more study focused, so geospatial, um, baseline surveys of food security in remote villages in South Sudan, things like that, maybe not as much of a requirement for hot storage on some of those things, but still um, we're doing critical research with those uh, efforts to improve the lives of some of the world's most vulnerable people. So uh, we want to make sure that we don't lose access to that. So in every case, we do make sure we have uh, redundancy, uh, whether it's minutes or uh, hours or days, uh, we plan for it accordingly. And uh, what do you do about the deduplication issue or the, or the 
you know, multiple copy of the same document and all of these other things that relate to ballooning data without actually different data. Yeah. Well, at this point, we're trying to pull essentially everything in a harmonized environment so that we don't have multiple uh, data, data silos within the agency at this point. Um, that has uh, led to us to uh, reduce our footprint considerably. Uh, as I mentioned, we've moved a lot of our uh, a, lot, a lot of our storage capability into the cloud uh, to ensure that, that that is the single environment, the single uh, source of truth for our data. Uh, to ensure there's there's no duplication. The real challenge right now, uh, as uh, as Tim was alluding to, is how do we start to uh, execute the advanced analytics on the, that data storage, uh, pulling uh, heterogeneous data together to generate new insights. I think that is uh, the point at which we're at today. And as, as Nick was referring to, we have data going back decades, uh, and and the real question is how do we um, how do we empower usage? Uh, all of the talk about data management, uh, if it does not result in usage to further the mission of the agency uh, is really fairly empty talk. And so we want to make sure we use that to benefit of the agency, and, and that's why we're here. Yeah, so it's not really like managing like a mummy where it has to be preserved but never touched or modified or used for, for the rest of history, but it becomes something that is alive. And, Dan, you mentioned, too, the deployment of mobility. And are there any special considerations for mobile data or data that gets used mobily there but absolutely is, and, and the architecture you put in place determines a lot of how you protect that data or how you consume that data. You know, our first step forward was to leverage what we already had existing, which were back-end data stores, and then allow that much similar to a web access, uh, a little more involved than that, but let that app sit out there, consume the data that already existed in a current existed storage. As we go forward into the next generation activities, we're looking at how we can better, much like what they've already done over there with Brandon, is how can we better leverage that information? Because when we look at our data stores, we may have that same data student record, for example, in four or five or six different data stores just within our environment. Now, add it to how many data stores that the schools have, it very quickly balloons. Um, so it's going to be important for us to begin to manage that data, go to the uh, much of what they've already you know gone through is is how do you do that unified pool that you know create collect once use multiple times access it in some kind of hub fashion where you're doing transactional things on the boundary to that central data pool and i think that's the only way we're going to be successful with mobile without putting mobile in in databases build new concepts and, and new environments where we don't need to. I think the transaction of a mobile application on the edge back into the data stores bringing what it needs, and, and that may be for, for student applications, it may be for the life cycle of their loan, it may be as we have one initiative where we're working with uh, credit card companies and being able to, to track that. We have an initiative where the loan servicers that are servicing the payback of the loan, can, a student can go and pull up on their mobile device, here's how much I owe. Oh, and by the way, here's some options where I could make my financing easier, I can make my payments more acceptable, et cetera. So we're going to become very, very mobile-centric as we go forward, and that data store being central is going to be, I think, critical to our success. Yeah, and Tim, this all leads me to think that uh, a differentiating factor in selection of where you put your data, what cloud, what facility it's in, really is not quite so much the metal that they have, but the services that they offer yeah, absolutely. for all of these different aspects of data usage we've been talking about. Yep, absolutely. So, so what we hear oftentimes from a lot of our customers is we, they want to avoid that vendor lock. Right? So I want to, we want to put our data out in the cloud. 
we want to put our data on different tiers, uh, whether it's archiving data or whether it's the warm data that, uh, uh, that we spoke about. Uh, so providing that platform to move your data to a, a cloud platform without being locked into that particular vendor, moving it between clouds, on cloud on prem a customer uh, or to a cloud provider uh, has been a significant uh, conversation that we're having with, with our customers. And how do you do that? How do you do that with a with a one enterprise platform? How do you do that uh, being able to manage your, your mobile data that Dan spoke about? How do you do that managing all of the tiers of, of warm data or cold data and move that off to a cloud, which hopefully shrinks your operating expenses, right? So uh, it's, it's extremely, extremely hot topic with, with all of our customers. We're going to get more on that topic, but right now we're going to take a short break. My guests today are Tim Stanley, Vice President for Federal Sales at Commvault. Nick Saki is Principal Engineer, America's Public Sector at Pure Storage. Daniel Commons is Federal Student Aid Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Education. And Brandon Pushovsky, Chief Data Officer at USAID. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Government Data, Protecting the Backbone of Innovation, sponsored by Commvault and Pure Storage here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, mission-driven analytics, and customer experience. These technology initiatives promise to help modernize government and ensure it works more effectively while driving higher volumes of data. With Commvault and Pure Storage, you can dramatically simplify data protection and recovery strategies while reducing risk. Learn how Commvault's data management solutions can handle your agency's data growth and accelerate your cloud strategy at commvault.com forward slash government. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Government Data, Protecting the Backbone of Innovation, sponsored by Commvault and Pure Storage here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guests today are Nick Saki, Principal Engineer, Americas in the Public Sector at Pure Storage. Daniel Commons is Federal Student Aid Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Education. Tim Stanley is Vice President for Federal Sales at Commvault. And Brandon Pushovsky is Chief Data Officer at USAID. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And let's move on. We were talking about services before the break and software services that lie on top of pure data storage, if you will, pun intended. Um, a lot of agencies are grappling with data usage versus how data is stored, and by that I mean in the active operating database connected to the application versus what we used to call as data warehouses have transmogrified into data hubs, data lakes, two different types of things. Uh, Nick, maybe you could tell us more about the meaning of all that in the context of efficiency and data usage. So the great desire of you know, pretty much everybody who's collecting large quantities of data is actually to integrate that and make that available to new and emerging analytics to answer new questions. The role of, of, of storage in this architecture is data service, actually making the data available to analytic applications today as well as financial transaction platforms, uh, what have you. But we, you know, the U.S. government is blessed with this tremendous abundance of data. And the question is how can we leverage it in new and innovative ways to provide us better insight, to reduce risk, to make smarter policy. Um, and that's really the role of, believe it or not, the, the boring pedestrian garden variety storage array, which is actually becoming rather what everybody now realizes is actually the hub for all of the data service in the enterprise. It's where the data is. It's where it's persisted. So what 
we're trying to enable is customers to create, rather than something that is, that is static and amorphous like a data lake where you just dump your data, um, it's, it's huge in capacity, but it's relatively inefficient in terms of reusing that data. Um, we want to bear in mind the four V's of data here, you know, volume, velocity, variety, and veracity. So those are four key characteristics that we, we need to leverage and we need to enable in the enterprise so that we can actually understand what our data is trying to tell us, so we can gain an intelligent advantage and, as a result, deliver better consumer services, better citizen services, and make better and smarter policies and decisions. So, to that end, you know, it's not just whether or not you can snapshot, clone, replicate, backup, and recover your data. Those are, those are foundational and important things. But also, can we make that data available not just to our traditional, you know, data management and data analysis enterprise resource planning platform, could we also then let an artificial intelligence set of algorithms and infrastructure leverage the same data off the same platform? Or our mobile enterprise and web services applications, they should be able to leverage the same data platform as well. If the hub is sufficiently robust and performant and cost efficient, the answer to that question is yes. That is part of the attraction of, of cloud um, because it provides that sort of scalability and durability. But that capability is also available in, 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 uh, in the agency and on-premises. Um, and then the other service is the ability to move that data back and forth between those environments, or what you would call the hybrid cloud environment today. So you see this in, uh, in the technology industry where we're working very hard to try and unify the enterprise so that there's really no distinction functionally and operationally between on-premises data services and off-premises data services and the ability to move them back and forth based off of the need um, is, is simply inherent within both platforms. So that's, that's what we mean when we're talking about a data hub. The data is available, the data is portable, the data is serviceable, and it enables the creation or the leveraging of newer analytical capabilities as time goes by seamlessly within the infrastructure that the agency's already procured. So does your database versus your data hub, say, versus if you have a data lake, are those all just virtual constructs or do they exist, exist separately physically and then, then you get into the issue of duplication of data? Well, ideally, the data is the data and it's simply the canonical repository. You know, whether, you know, databases will be contributing data but also drawing data from that data hub. So in a, in a very large sense, you've abstracted away the applications altogether from the data itself. I think that's important because applications will change over time and new applications will emerge over time. Uh, but if you have you know, the canonical data repository, and Brandon actually has been emphasizing this from the USAID side, He's got a canonical data repository. What he can do then is leverage new analytical capabilities as they come along. And canonical is the veracity of the four Vs. It is the single source of truth, exactly. Okay. It's veracity. Um, so what is that, in, in terms of how do we manage the data itself, whether it's duplicative or not, um, that's actually very often a function of the storage platform. Certainly in, in our mm -hmm. case, both with our, our flash array systems and with store reduce, we have the ability to reduce or uh, eliminate duplicate logical copies of that data so that there's only one. This contributes to a couple of things, but most most significantly storage efficiency. Sure. 
Brandon, does that sound about right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, I think Nick's got it uh, right right on point. Um, we are working on the canonical uh, version of our data. You know, I, I appreciate the the kudos. At the same time, you know, you're 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 your own worst critic in many cases, and so we recognize we've got a long way to go. Um, but we are working truly on pulling uh, all of our authoritative data sources together into. Uh, a single repository hosted in the cloud so that we can run enterprise analytics on it uh, and, and make sure that when we're, uh, when we're responding to data calls from Congress, from the American public, uh, from our own staff, that we can respond authoritatively and know that that data is in fact the authoritative uh, data. And furthermore, that we can harmonize it so that we can uh, you know, couple HR data with facilities data, with financial data, with uh, research and study data to generate new insights. Um, but as we think about putting together something like a, a data hub, whether it's inside USAID or outside the wall, I think that's where it starts to also get very interesting. You can pull these these data sources together, but you also want to start running analytics dynamically on top of them, uh, and then be able to visualize, in many cases, that data for the non-data folks, to share those insights in a way that the American public can understand. And uh, for an agency like ours that uh, also collaborates internationally with organizations such as the CDC or National Institutes of Health, how might we do that in a way that's also friendly uh, to the interagency? Uh, so that uh, not only are we using canonical USA data, but canonical CDC data or NIH data, uh, and then deriving yet new insights at the interagency level to respond to uh, very high-profile uh, responses, such as the Ebola outbreak and things like that. Uh, that's where we want to go in the future. Yeah, I guess, well, if we have data uh, streams of biblical proportions, it's mm -hmm. good to have canonical copies of them. That would and, work, uh, yes. yeah. And Dan, uh, education, similar types of problems in terms of dealing Absolutely. with... Absolutely, uh, and I think where we are right now is where Brandon may have been a year or so ago, where we have, we've gone out, done the market uh, reviews, done our research, we're looking at a hub uh, implications as we go into the next generation financial services over the next 18 months to two years to start building that, that hub arrangement where our current uh, intensive systems that have their own databases, that have their own front ends, then becomes uh, a smaller transactional application that reaches into that data store. And I think, uh, again, new capabilities, new analytics, everything you want to add become a transition, uh, transactional piece of it mm -hmm. to leverage that single data source. And I think where they are now is where we will be in six to eight months, and then where do we move from there forward? It's going to be the critical steps to get to sure. that single truth of life. Yeah, and so, Tim, that raises the question, how do you protect data in that situation? Because both from a pure cybersecurity standpoint, but also from a uh, access and rights standpoint, because for some purposes it's PII and not everyone can touch it. Right. For analytical purposes, maybe they can touch part of it, but not the last name or whatever, I'm just, whatever the case might be. So that becomes a complex question. It, it does, and I think, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have the right, Policies. You've got to have the right management, data management, storage policies in place. And once you've got that right policy in place, then you can start to protect your data and move it to move it to the right level of storage, uh, cloud, uh, uh, customer, uh, on-prem. Uh, but once you have that data, you've got it. You've got it. Uh, you've got it protected, and you've got it indexed. Then you can start looking at that data and understanding where are my where are my vulnerabilities? Do I have, have I got PII? Have I got PHI data that is sitting out there unprotected? Um, but but putting that data under protected, get it get it getting that data indexed so that you can do that 
level of complex search looking for the, that piece of that nugget of data that you're looking for. Um, but I, Tom, I wanted to add it on to you know, the, va the value of the data that we have in the enterprise. Um, it sits out there uh, being protected. Everybody's, everybody's, all of us are protecting our data, whether it be ERP data or whether it be uh, student services data or whether it be data from some remote villages. We're protecting that data. And the value of that data is what we need to figure out how to extract, making it accessible, making it understandable, uh, linking the, the data from the applications that are disparate and not necessarily connected to each other to find out where are the gaps from one application to another. And then finally, where's the trustworthy? Where's that source of truth coming from? And, and, I, and, and I would argue that, that you've got that data lake already. You've got that data warehouse already without creating it because of the data that sits out there under protection, under protection, indexed, uh, searchable, Use that data where it sits out at the edge, and then bring that together in a um, in a uh, in, in a platform that becomes a dashboard, becomes this uh, uh, common operating platform that you then can tie information mm -hmm. from one application or one agency to another agency because you're, you're you're sourcing the data from where it exists out at the edge. Yeah, and that gets to the question of sharing too, because as Brandon said, sometimes you know multiple agencies may have a collaboration. What happens? when they have slightly differing policies, but they still want to use each other's data for some mashup purpose of a public purpose, but people are coming at it with different schemes or schema, then, then you've got, got an issue. How do, you, how do we talk about that one? You know, the thing I love about this particular conversation is that we're focusing on being good stewards of the data. And one thing, uh, you know, particularly with our partners who want to use cutting-edge technologies, they want to go right to the technology. And I think we all respect that. I think we all do. But one of the mantras that I try to reinforce is that we cannot take advantage of the technologies of tomorrow if we're not willing to invest in our data today. And the USA Data Services team is part of the Office of the Chief Information Officer. And our CIO often says, you know, the, the work of data and data stewardship often takes place behind the scenes. It may not be sexy or often in the spotlight like it happens to be today, which we're thankful for, but ultimately once organizations see the improved efficiencies and, uh, and uh, effectiveness of good data management, they become believers and real contributors to the data revolution in a sense. Um, so there is uh, much to be learned from uh, taking advantage of that. And then to your point, Tom, in terms of standardizing data, you know, there are, there are comics out there about, uh, you know, you can, you know, create the standard of all standards, in which case you've just created another standard. And that's, that's not going to work. The real question is, how do we create authoritative crosswalks, uh, probably, that allow uh, agencies to, uh, to share each other's data? And so, you know, there is the National Information Exchange model that I mm -hmm. think many folks are familiar with that helps yep. uh, move along, along those lines. Uh, but I think that's where a lot of the work needs to be done to start investing in those crosswalks and then uh, storing those crosswalks to ensure authoritative uh, integration moving forward. And Dan, I think Brandon's flavor of sharing might be more intergovernmental. You've got maybe a more commercial situation with, edu with financial institutions right. servicing the federal loans. And so what are some of the issues there well, I think with there respect three, to data? There are three big partners we have. We do have the federal government because we do interface with Social Security, IRS, et cetera, to do validation on that data we receive from the students and to ensure that the right actions are being taken across the board. So we have five or six major federal partners, and we do a data share, most of it machine to machine. It goes back to how do we do the crosswalk uh, actions. Um, there is the third-party lender society and the servicers who actually manage the loans after 
the school uh, after the students completed their education and they're into that repayment mode mm -hmm. and how do they consume That's where the, the data years comes in. that comes in <laughs> where a lot of the years absolutely a lot of the years it takes to repay the student loans and then there's the schools and how do we interact with those most of those are state agencies some of them are private commercial uh, they range from a student population of somewhere around 74,000 down to schools that have 50 students so it, it's a immense problem for us to address um, I think the protection of that data has always been critical to us. We've, we've applied the, the traditional standard things of encryption and tokenization where we mask certain data, but it goes back to getting the right access to the right data for the right purpose. And part of what we're looking at as we move forward to our hub arrangements is how do we label or tag that data so that we can make it available in those different forms for those different purposes to be able to satisfy a lot of requirements like as, as a as a educator as a person that's trying to find out you know what does our environment look like how much money are we spending on education what's our payback for that money we're spending as a taxpayer all of that data needs to be available and accessible in a means that they understand but i don't have to give them all the social security numbers i need to make sure that doesn't happen i need to give them what they need so as we move forward into the next generation activities Part of what we're challenging ourselves is how best can we do that? What is the current existing, and again, we have to go back to technology a little bit, but what does technology now look like, and where do we think we want to drive technology in some cases to help us manage that data better and be able to provide that data to the consumers? Because everyone wants to see that data. It sounds like you're describing almost the evolution of a network of data hubs, if you will, among the different agencies. It potentially could be. Um, as we look fabric. at best cases, as we look at practices that are being put in place, folks that are leading this in the, in the hub environment or the uh, data management environment, uh, because it's not just the, the hub or the particular application you're putting into, it's how do we manage data, and that's management from how do we use it, how do we consume it, how do we protect it. So it's all those factors go into the data management. And that's going to be critical as we go forward. All right, on that note, we'll take a short break. My guests today are Daniel Commons, Federal Student Aid Chief Information Security Officer at the Department of Education. Tim Stanley is Vice President for Federal Sales at Commvault. Brandon Pashovsky is Chief Data Officer at USAID. And Nick Psaki is Principal Engineer for Americas in the Public Sector at Pure Storage. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. This discussion is Government Data, Protecting the Backbone of Innovation, sponsored by Commvault and Pure Storage, here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, mission-driven analytics, and customer experience. These technology initiatives promise to help modernize government and ensure it works more effectively while driving higher volumes of data. With Commvault and Pure Storage, you can dramatically simplify data protection and recovery strategies while reducing risk. Learn how Commvault's data management solutions can handle your agency's data growth and accelerate your cloud strategy at commvault.com forward slash government. Welcome back to our panel discussion, Government Data Protecting the Backbone of Innovation, sponsored by Commvault and Pure Storage, here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guests today are Nick Saki, Principal Engineer for the Americas at the Public Sector at Pure Storage, Daniel Commons is Federal Student Aid Chief Information Security Officer at the Education Department, Tim Stanley is Vice President for Federal Sales at Commvault, 
and Brandon Pashofsky, Chief Data Officer at USAID. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. And very early in the discussion, Dan, we were talking with you about the new technology stack, which you're actually building to support all of the services we've discussed. Give us a sense of what is in a new technology stack. Uh, sure, I think it's kind of important that we understand the current existing technology stack, which I think we've we've kind of challenged and reached the the limits of the way we've designed traditional databases and database activities and how we access those. Um, and without changing our methodology and changing those stacks, we are going to basically hit a wall at some point. Um, so as we're looking at moving to the next generation, a lot of what we're looking at is is how do we expand that out, um, cloud environments. Uh, Brandon's talked about cloud. We've talked about several times at the table. Um, we've got to figure out how to move out and up and be able to leverage all of that in the new technology stacks. And we talked about the hub. There are other you know, technologies, I think we'll, we'll allude to them a little bit later as we get into some more details here, but um, we've got to look and, and see how we can manage this stuff and be able to, to do that scalability to provide that. We talked a little bit about the mobile environment. Um, you know, the typical interest of uh, a student here is I hit a tile, I want that data to come up immediately. And the problem we run into a lot of times with existing technology is latency in the network, latency within the environment to get from that database buried in a data center out through whatever mechanisms we have, then deliver it to, in our case, my student aid is hosted in the cloud, deliver it to the cloud, then to get it out over the wire to the student. If that's taking more than milliseconds, um, we are failing that body of people because of their expectations. Um, so we've got to look at how we can leverage the cloud and leverage capabilities within the cloud that that environment provides us to get that data to them virtually and on demand instantly when they hit that tile and their data starts coming up. So I think it's important that we look at that. Now we're just starting the infancy of that. You know, Brandon and his team is much further along with that and designing right now what we're, we're planning and implementing over the next year. Yeah, and that idea of scaling up, I think, is really crucial. And, I mean, at one time, maybe 15, 18 years ago, Nick, you know, the idea of content delivery networks was the vogue. With cloud, that sort of, in some sense, replaces content delivery networks, but you've got fewer and more concentrated facilities. So how do you scale both ways? Well, I think that the CDNs still very much exist and that the cloud has significantly enhanced and augmented them. If you're, if you're thinking about in terms of you know, the Akamai's and the Netflix of the world, there are, in fact, you know, content delivery networks that are leveraging the cloud because mm -hmm. it's a set of capabilities that are exceedingly well tailored to each other. Um, the, the stack infrastructure necessary for today and for the future is significantly different than the organic and siloed stacks that we built in the past. In the past, we, you know, we had a database, so we bought some servers, we bought some storage, and we bought some networks to support that database application, and then something else would come along, and we'd buy, some, buy something else to, to do that. We are learning some lessons, particularly at hyperscale, um, that sort of reinforce the everything old is new again sort of mentality and architecture. What we build today uh, and what we, we strive to build are disaggregated architectures that are really built around uh, sets of services at a variety of levels. All right, So at your foundational level, uh, your services are compute networking and storage or compute networking and data service. Uh, then on top of that, you build application services that scale and adapt and change 
as the consumer demand changes, uh, whether that is the agency wanting to know new things or to pull their data for new insights, or on the very edge of the consumer side, students who want to register for classes and apply for their student loans, or countries who want to interact with USAID and uh, participate in nation national capacity building. And all of these things really need to be driven by a very flexible and very powerful underlying infrastructure. The, uh, the secondary piece, and I really, I really want to give you know, Tim and Comvault a hat tip on this, is now that we've built all of this capacity and we've collected and generated all of this data, how do we protect that data and not only back up but restore that data? So all of these things become of a piece, but I think our understanding of how the architecture of the future needs to be baselined to support that adaptability, flexibility, and scalability has really matured, particularly in government in the last five to 10 years. I've been, I've been doing this for a while, and I've seen us talk about service-oriented architectures with a vision of what that should be, and it looks a lot like what we have today, but we weren't really able to build it 10 years ago. I mean, a lot has changed in terms of system interoperability, protocol interoperability, protocols have matured, uh, application programming interfaces, APIs have significantly matured. Our understanding of what these things can be and become has really manifested itself to where we are today. So we're really on the cusp of a lot of capability that we always dreamed of having, but now we finally have. And one of the fun things that we're all doing today is figuring out how to bring all of these technologies to bear um, to support what it is we're trying to do. At the end of the day, technology always serves to support human endeavor and capability. And I think that that's the situation we find ourselves in today is finally having the technology, the technological capability to support what we've been trying to do for a very long time with all of this data. Granted, that idea of service-oriented architecture and really in service of performance to users ultimately is what we're all after here. Absolutely. But how does that play into your plans? It, it's right in line. I, I like the phrase uh, architecture, architecture of the future. Um, I, I, I do like that phrase, architecture of the future. What does that look like for uh, USAID? What does that look like for the development community? If you think back you know, 20, 30 years, this was the frontline uh, relief worker in a refugee camp with a clipboard. Today, it's that same aid worker in a village, in a camp, um, you know, a, responding to a famine with a, a mobile phone using an app or uh, an iPad or something like that. And, uh, and, and the question that we're faced with is how to create an architecture that can take this raw data from the front lines in very austere environments in many cases where, you know, as Dan was mentioning, you know, latency is, is a huge issue. Um, and, and then make sure that that gets uploaded, whether it's via, you know, a satellite connection or if there is a Wi-Fi connection and pulled into uh, a, a secure environment. Uh, th that we know it'll be uh, safeguarded and, and preserved, uh, but then integrated into the entire enterprise for a broader uh, organizational view. That's where we want to head. Um, the challenge right now is that, and we like the fact that this is a challenge, is that our partners are, are pushing us as an agency to adopt the next best thing in terms of uh, mobile uh, handheld devices, uh, in terms of using uh, drones for monitoring, uh, using uh, increased geospatial data, uh, using sensors to uh, predict landslides, uh, those sorts of things. We absolutely want to do that. 
so the architecture of the future is one that would be able to accommodate all of those inputs, but not in a way that uh, supports a thousand flowers blooming, but uh, really uh, creates a bouquet, if you will, uh, that all works together nicely to produce something uh, of beauty for uh, the well-being of, of humankind. Uh, so we do want to, sure. sorry for all the analogies, but that's really what we want to do. So. Yeah, so Tim, it strikes me that there's kind of a leapfrogging constant uh, effect here of processing power and the data we're moving. I mean, this would be easy if we were moving bits of data with the network available today. There would be no latency whatsoever, but we're moving megabytes with graphics. We're overlaying encryption on it sometimes in motion. So there's a lot going through and then a lot hitting those processors. So what, what's, what are great strategies for both protection so, so and recovery and right. low so, latency? So Brandon's right. You know, all, <coughs> all the things, excuse me, the things that he talked about are, are, are doing one beautiful thing is generating a ton of data. And, 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 and yesterday, we would protect data. We would put agents out there and we would protect data uh, in different window, different batch windows so that we made sure that we got the data protected in a certain particular window that we needed to protect it in. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and those windows just continued growing and growing and growing over time as the data got larger and larger. Tomorrow, we have this technology, this hyperscale technology that allows you to increase the compute power, which allows you to protect those large data sets, that volume of data, in a much smaller window, uh, which, is, which is important. Protecting the data is important. But what's even more important is you've got that compute power to, uh, to retrieve that data, to bring it back from that archive even even more quickly or as quickly as you protected it. So it's being able to get that. You can protect the data. It's great. But if you can't get it back, mm-hmm. uh, that is a big problem, right? So so the hyperscale uh, the hyperscale architecture gives you uh, gives you that opportunity, gives you that compute power that allows you to protect the data, but it will bring it back in a in a in a, in a very rapid fashion. Uh, so that's that's it's really 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 important um, for uh, for today tomorrow's architectures. And we also talked about the idea of these data hubs, and I was wondering, given the questions about recovery and also latency, and then I guess really the question of veracity of the data, there was an architectural approach, and and tell me if this is still a part of your thinking or if this is something we need to think about as we go forward, and that is uh, the local caching of data closer to the actual use, which would disaggregate a data hub in one sense, at least physically, maybe not virtually, and is that part of thinking nowadays, or are we t- past that that need? Well, at USAID, we're certainly doing some of that. So the the actual compute is certainly not on the system of record, for example. You know, we are pulling extracts of that for faster compute. Uh, and uh, and reporting, and it's also those extracts that we're bringing together in a in a data commons environment, uh, so that we can mm-hmm. couple the various flavors of data. Uh, but again, the systems of record are running separately. So uh, for us, that's still a still a concept we're using. Yeah, Nick. So I was going to say, the idea of positioning data forward at the edge, if you will, is actually still very valid. Um, there's been a lot of talk about it in industry. And I know in my, my past work in government, we used to talk about edge nodes, and it's really driven principally by one key significant factor. Uh, according to various estimates from Forbes, The Economist, etc., we'll be generating between 44 to 55 zettabytes of data in 2021. The problem is, is we will only have 11 zettabytes of network bandwidth, so data growth will exceed bandwidth capacity by a factor of four or five. And that's really non-trivial. So in order for us to be able to do the things we want to do, we will have to position data forward. And ideally, we'll only be bringing back what we've determined are actually relevant data or long-lived data 
valuable data and let the dross fall on the floor at the edge rather than try and backhaul everything. I think that you know data management and data collection activities in the past really focused on we're going to grab everything because we're not really sure what's valuable and we'd really hate to not have something or lose something, let it hit the cutting room floor and find out later, oh, we really needed that. But we've become much more savvy as data consumers as well. We know what's valuable to us. And a lot of that does get determined at the edge at the point of collect. Um, so you have your edge nodes that define um, the utility and relevance of that data and then it comes back to the central repositories as you know, to the canonical sources of truth, the things that we really know are actually valuable data. But hoovering everything is not an effective or efficient way to actually improve uh, your data holdings. Uh, it, it makes them big, sure, but then you've got the needle and haystack problem and you simply multiply your data gravity problems. Moving and housing data past a certain scale becomes prohibitively expensive, not just computationally, but financially as well. And when you're moving the data, you're moving that data from the edge where you're collecting it out in the most remote areas. Uh, you're moving that data. You only want to move what's changed, right? You don't want to continue right. to move that full mm -hmm. block of data over what may, may very well be a very thin pipe. Mm -hmm. uh, so moving that change block data over to where you're going to protect that data. And then once you've got that data under protection, provide that, uh, provide that uh, platform so that you can uh, you can report on it, so that you can provide that uh, that the metadata, the metadata uh, mm -hmm. catalog uh, that tells you what kind of data you have, tells you about your data, what you have in your data. So that's uh, and that that's idea of only moving what's changed probably applies to backup as well. Absolutely, does absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, it would apply to everything across the board. Um, that's where we have to be smart when we design our transactional applications that are accessing that. That they are looking for deltas. They're looking for those changes. One of the problems in being a cybersecurity guy, one of the problems I have is the cybersecurity data associated with, with all of the different uh, logging and activities that we have to do to, to watch that. The traditional cybersecurity approach has been, I just give it all to me and I'll figure out what's important, but we can't do that. There's, there's just way too much. Uh, a typical single Windows event log is going to be, could be thousands and thousands of lines of, of activity. You just can't manage it. So now we've got to identify exactly what it is that we need and the questions we're trying to answer. And I think that that's going back to those transaction applications where it's what are you trying to provide? So one of our tiles for the student aid app may be I just need my loan stuff, so we're going to pull the loan stuff. Sure. So we've got to have, make those transactional applications more intelligent on what they're asking for from the data stores and then only move the data we need to move. I imagine the, the hybrid environment really complicates this because what is in your data center, what's on premises versus what's in the cloud, I think probably nobody's 100% cloud, maybe not even USAID at this point. Not, we're close, uh, <laughs> we're close, but uh, you know the, the hybrid environment is still very much an issue for us. I and mean, we work in over 85 countries around the world. Uh, the monitoring and evaluation platforms that we use may differ from uh, one mission to another, whether it's Latin America or Africa or uh, Asia. And what we don't want is an environment where, uh, you know, first of all, from a human capital standpoint, you have a foreign service officer going from point A to point B and having to learn a new system uh, every two to four years. Uh, but from a data management perspective, we want that data to be as homogenous as possible. So that's one of the things that we're working on right now is to harmonize uh, a cloud-based system across uh, 85 countries around the world, no small effort, to ensure that we pull all of that data into a harmonized environment uh, for organizational use and, and dashboarding at the executive level. 
All right. You know, I wish we had two hours because there's so much more to do, but I'm afraid we are out of time. So if I may, I'd like to thank today's guests. Brandon Pashovsky is Chief Data Officer at USAID. Daniel Commons is Federal Student Aid Chief Information Security Officer and Director of the Information Technology Risk Management Center at the Department of Education. Tim Stanley is Vice President for Federal Sales at Commvault. And Nick Saki is Principal Engineer Americas in the Public Sector at Pure Storage. I'm your moderator, Tom Temin. You're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Commvault. Thank you for listening to the panel discussion, Government Data, Protecting the Backbone of Innovation, sponsored by Commvault and Pure Storage on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.